Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast, Noel Kassler Podcast, episode 24. I'm back here with my main man, Jimmy Kennedy, to break down the week's events and, uh, you know, catch up with you guys. So what's going on, Jimmy? How you doing, man? It's been a good week, man. I was featured um, on a podcast this week, Tony Michaels, uh, talking about similar stuff that we talk about on this show. And Trump wasn't reinstated yesterday. What a surprise. You know, uh, maybe I'll be reinstated as POTUS next week. I think that has the same probability. Yeah, I think Ivana has a better chance of being reinstated as his first wife. You know, <laughs> you know I, I used to do an event with Ivana all the time. And I feel like every year called the Angel Ball. And she looks like him. Bizarrely, she looks like a female kind of version of him. And I always thought like what he deserved most was to be married to a woman his own age. <laughs> you know, like he, I, I see her and I'm like, that's who he has. That's who he should be arm in arm with. And it's not to disparage, you know, women that age. And that's what you're kind of supposed to do. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to be with somebody your own age and grow old with them. That's beautiful. That's sexy. You know what I mean? That's true, like romance and stuff. But Donald Trump is all about image. He's trying to pretend like he's this stud marrying a, you know, a European supermodel for hire, you know, and, and everyone's like, wow, you know, he married a supermodel, you know, and he's 60 or whatever when he marries her. So, <laughs> you know, it's image. And that's what the whole reinstatement thing was. They don't think he's getting reinstated. It doesn't matter. It's about keeping the airwaves open with his name, you know, and keeping the channel to grift open. And I was out on on Cape Cod yesterday and the Trumpers were out, dude. I saw a guy walking down the beach with a Trump 2024. You know, he was probably your age. He was probably like 24 or something. He had a Trump 2024 black T-shirt on and he had a picture of it of him and Trump. Like he had met Trump at a rally or something <laughs> and gotten a selfie. So he had it like and he was walking with pride, like Aryan youth. He looked like the Caulfield guy or whatever the fuck his name is. Sorry to curse. Uh -huh. Oh, uh, Cawthorn? Madison yeah, Cawthorn. he looked like Madison Cawthorn, except he could walk. You know what I mean? Don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. get canceled for that joke. He can actually stand up, Madison. But uh, <laughs> anyway, you know, he was like an Aryan youth is my point. You know, he was yeah. walking down looking like a Nazi with this T-shirt on. And it, it drove me nuts because it's a beach. You know, there's Americans on that beach and Americans come in all shapes, sizes and colors. That's what makes it America. And, it, you know, it really bothered me that another family would have to see that. You know, how do you think that made the African-American beachgoers feel when they see this kid walking down the beach? And, you know, anybody or anybody with a brain, you know, and they do <laughs> it to own the liberals. Look. I'm branded, you know, I'm a tough guy like Trump and they're out. They're flying their freak flags everywhere. You know, all of these beaches have like, uh, sadly, an area where you can drive your truck on the beach. And it's like, what kind of asshole wants to drive a truck on the beach? Like already <laughs> you lost me if you want to sit by your big pickup truck. And like, that's your idea of beach going, you know, rolling over turtle eggs and plover nests and things like that. But that's a big part of, you know, America. And th those guys are there. They were on Nantucket where I was a week ago. You know, there's a place called Monomoy where you can drive way out and look at the seals. And I had some friends who went out there and they were like, dude, people had like those freak, you know, those yellow flags, don't tread on me. And they had like the 13 stars. There's this other symbolism. I forget the name, but somebody there's a name of a flag that these guys all carried on the insurrection and stuff. So, yeah. It's branded. So even though he didn't come back, his guys are sort of gearing up for battle. And, and that's what I keep talking about on this show. Like Trump hasn't gone away. He's never going to be president again. He probably will run, obviously, and he'll use it as a grifting opportunity. And then he'll appoint DeSantis or somebody to actually do the job as long as he gets a cut of the money. But he won't let go of the illusion and that's what I was saying. He deserves to be with somebody his own age. He deserves to pay a price for his crimes. And the hole that's left in the fabric of this nation by not holding him accountable will be something it'll take centuries to repair if it ever does get repaired. You know, how do you mend that tear in the fabric of America where a 24 year old kid walks down the beach with a picture of his hero on his chest and his hero killed 600,000 Americans, locked up children in cages, lied, tried to get the DOG to reinstate him, you know, to say the election was a fraud, which we learned last week and we'll get into in a minute. But 
my point is it's always about image. It's always about branding. And Americans are a people that have grown up in consumerism, right? Everything is a product from your cereal to your comic books, to your action heroes. Everything is marketing that some corporation gets a piece of. And that became the food of American life. Not just literally, you know what I mean? Not just literally, but, and food is, is McDonald's. Food is brand name. It's like, what are you going to eat? Cheeseburger? No, you're going to eat McDonald's. You're going to eat Taco Bell. Like what corporation do we want to eat for dinner tonight, guys? Yeah, well, and the great example of that is the NCAA tournament. You know, the entire tournament was hosted here in Indianapolis this year. And everything from, you know, the nets being cut down in the final round of the final four to the ladders that they use to cut down the nets are sponsored by folks who are running the tournament. And the same deal has actually permeated politics, the one thing that should be exempt from money. But we've seen through our elections, through things, uh, you know, like um, the corporations being viewed as people. What was the name of that case? Either, either way, you know, we're seeing Citizens so much. United. Citizens yeah, United. Yeah. yeah, Citizens United. We're seeing all of that stuff really come home to roost now and we're seeing the effect that it's having on the people that it gets elected and are working on our behalf sadly <laughs> yeah absolutely you know it's all about the money and it's all about manipulating these people and you know look what we're dealing with in this country most of these schools are going to open you know many of them on monday and uh, when this podcast comes out and can you imagine sending your child to a class mm. your pride and joy knowing that they may not live out the school year they may not get to dress up for Halloween if they catch an airborne virus here in August and September. You're already in a climate where you have to send them to school thinking they might get shot. I rode through, you know, Sandy Hook in Newtown last night. You know, the road I come home on the East on goes right through there. And I, it breaks my heart every time. I just can't imagine that we haven't solved that problem. And we haven't, you know. And now you have parents showing up at school board meetings talking nonsense, talking just gibberish that the Russians put into their jello infected minds, you know, and now they're like, Trump is president. You saw that lady. I don't know if you saw the viral clip of the lady had a sandwich board around her, you know, that said <laughs> reinstate Trump and the vaccine is a hoax and there's no such thing as COVID. These are Americans and there's millions of them. There's millions of them. And the poison is in every pound of their oversaturated bodies. Junk food created a, like an army of people. I, I'm using that metaphorically, but it's true. Like you feed people trash, trash comes back out of them. And that's what happened to a big chunk of the American people. And Donald Trump was an irresistible dish. He was the golden corral of politicians. You know, all you can eat shit that is sugary and sweet you know, and makes you feel better in the moment. That's what's showing up at school board meetings. Parents like railing on doctors. They attacked doctors in Nashville as they were leaving a school board meeting and saying, we know where you live. Like that is insane. You almost don't deserve the benefits of this society. You know, I have healthcare workers that are, you know, I'm friends with, I know tons of them. I kept in touch with them during the last year and they'd get transferred to like Texas or something. And they'd be like, hey, I'm in Corpus Christi. It's hell on earth. I work 12 hour shifts watching people die all day long. Well, and coming from the pro-life party, you know, yet they don't want to pay for health care, education, you know, anything that will benefit a person in the long term. The, the GOP is not for including infrastructure because they know that impacts businesses and their bottom line. It's becoming clearer and clearer by the day just how far the GOP has drifted into fascism and they're about control and they're killing people every day. You know, Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis are killing people, folks. There's no other way to put it. And they're taking advantage of our healthcare system that's on the brink of collapsing in those states because there's just not enough of a workforce to supply the needs of the people. Well, not to mention the system itself is, is set up so healthcare companies make all the money. Rick Scott was the governor of Florida, the state that's sort of leading the world in COVID cases right now. It, you know, it, it's second to a nation in Africa, I think. 
I don't know the exact nation, but you know, Florida is like, if it was a country, you wouldn't be able to fly to it right now. You know, they'd be like, nope, you can't go there, you know, and we wouldn't let anybody from there come here. So Governor Rick Scott, who's now a senator, and before he was a governor, was the CEO of Columbia HCA, a healthcare company. He stole almost $2 billion from the government, from socialism, from guaranteed like healthcare, from money that people pay into, right? He stole it. And his severance package, because like he got busted on it, right? So they gave him like three hundred million in stock options, a five point six million dollar severance package, and a bonus of like a couple million dollars a year of a consulting fee for five years. That's what happens to white guys who steal two billion dollars. They pay them to leave, and then they get to become governor and senator, right? And ensure that way of life. It's like I was saying about Governor Abbott. Same deal. He's owned by oil companies. So when these guys get busted, there's so much fear at the corporate level that the house of cards is going to come down, that they pay these guys to become even more powerful. That's how it really works. It wasn't like, oh my God, this guy's a criminal. He should go to jail for, you know, ripping off the government and using his company to defraud its members. Right. It was like, let's reward him. Let him go play nicely in the political arena now and protect companies to still do that kind of thing, because what they don't want you to see is that there was so much money involved that the guy was allowed to steal one point seven billion. You know what I mean? Like how much money are they taking in if that's how much they're embezzling? But so that's how it works. That's the big grift and the big game that I'm always trying to point out. That's business as usual. That's what they're trying to protect. And that's what has to change. And that's what like vested interests don't want to change in this country. Well, and you've brought it up before, but with the amount of money, like you said, he was allowed to take $1.7 billion. It paves the way for a Betsy DeVos to run the Department of Education when her family was the Amway uh, fortune before she got her money with education, right? And the the Orlando Magic play in a place called the Amway Center, <laughs> you know, like if you have an NBA team that's playing in an arena that's named after your company, you have plenty of money. The Ursay family makes plenty of money off of Lucas Oil, and there's a reason why they're a sponsor of an NFL team. So, you know, we are talking about an enormous amount of cash uh, that's amongst a small group of people. Absolutely. And Eric Prince is Betsy DeVos's brother, also heir to the Amway fortune, who has his own billion dollar fortune now from running, you know, black operations all over the globe. First, when he had Blackwater and now this other agency that he has that's in bed with China and they're doing all this like nefarious stuff in Africa. The guy's a mercenary, basically on behalf of corporations and the politicians that they own. We discussed this before on the show, but Eric Prince was running an operation out of his ranch in Wyoming Wyoming during the last election where he was training operatives like British SAS and Israeli (laughs) Mossad guys to infiltrate the Democratic Party and get dirt on them. You know, honeypots, hot chicks to go in there and saddle up to who they perceive their enemies. And he did it. They did it to H.R. McMaster, who was serving in the Trump administration, you know, which shows you what a den of snakes it is. And there are a few people behind the scenes being like, make sure that the grift never really truly gets exposed. And it should be mind boggling to people that Trump is walking free. And it shouldn't be. He raped somebody in a department store, probably one of the dozens he had already raped up to that point. She was famous. They knew each other. And the guy was like, I'm going to rape her in the dressing room and then casually walk back to my office three blocks away with my NYPD security team escorting me down Fifth Avenue. And I'm going to fucking get away with it because I'm Donald J. Trump and I always have. And that's true. He got away with it. She's fighting him. She's a warrior. But it's 20 years later and the DOJ is protecting him, not her. Do you know what I'm saying? So in a just world, a guy like that would have gone to prison for the sex predation that he did. You know, I had a friend who was 12 years old when she met him. She used to skate at his roller rink in Central Park and he took a liking to her and she called him his dirty uncle, her dirty uncle. And she ended up in Epstein's house with those guys. And I don't even get into details because she's like, no, you don't even want to know what they did to women in that place. But that was no secret. You know, you think people didn't know Trump was a rapist when he had the beauty pageants on The Apprentice. They wouldn't let women be alone with him. The production staff would be like, don't end up in a room alone with that guy. 
lest you want to get grabbed. So he was a psychopath. Everybody knew it, but he represented a way to make money and he was in bed with corporations, right? NBC wasn't going to lose a cash cow on Sunday nights like Apprentice and Celebrity Apprentice, even though a scumbag rapist was the head of the show. Jeff Zucker wanted money. It's like there's money involved, you know, the franchise of like Miss Teen US, Miss Teen USA and Miss Universe. Like who does that? How do you pitch a show like that? Here, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get the hottest teenage girl in every state. We're going to fly them to Atlantic City. We're going to put them in a bikini. We're going to get some middle-aged men like, say, Scott Bayo and Geraldo to tell us which one they think is the winner. Then we'll put a crown on her. You know what I mean? And don't yeah. worry, this is all going to be under the auspices of Donald Trump. Nothing will go wrong. Like, what you know what I'm saying? Like, that was a good idea to somebody 20, 30 years ago. It kills me, you know, to give you an example of how well he was sold to the heartland, to the to where I'm from. You know, I went to college with guys who would tell me, well, you know, he hosted The Apprentice for eight years. Uh, that would make him a great president. And I, I would retort back and say, you know, by that metric, we should have Bill Cosby be president next. You know, like if, if hosting a TV show is your metric for being the most powerful person in the world, including access to the nuclear codes at any time, you maybe need to reevaluate your own reality. I mean, and that's that's what we just dealt with the last four years. And 74 million people wanted another round of that bullshit. Yeah, I mean, they, it's, they, it's just amazing. It's amazing. And they, they want more of it now. You know, they want to wear the T-shirts and fly the flags because they became a lifestyle brand. And you know, like those people that said that to you probably grew up in homes where they thought Reagan was a great president, right? And Reagan was the first kind of reality show president. He was an actor. You know, he was a racist actor who became head of SAG and then governor of California. And it was all image. You know, it's morning again in America, you know, and they show him chopping wood and stuff on a ranch looking all tough. In reality, he was a drug dealer. <laughs> you know, the CIA was running cocaine up out of Colombia to Central America. Boom. To, you know, Manuel Noriega to South Central. Right. Because they were making money off it to fund a right wing paramilitary operation in Central America because Congress had cut them off. They couldn't go after the Sandinistas in the way they wanted to. Right. So they needed a way to fund the Contras. So they started selling cocaine. And they figured out if we do it in the inner cities, we can destroy and then lock up people we don't want to help out anyway. So it's like a double bonus. And we'll give the white guys a pass on Wall Street that are snorting it. So we'll make a distinction. If you're caught with powder, it's not that much a big deal. But if you're caught with rock cocaine, we're going to throw you in jail for 30 years, you know, and then mm -hmm. feed the prison industrial complex. Right. So the whole thing was a really dark scam. And the guys behind it are the same guys that were involved with Trump. Elliot Abrams, all these kind of guys that resurfaced in the Trump era because Trump was like a Reagan. You know, he was an actor and he appealed to those kind of guys in the heartland or the guy I saw with the T-shirt on the beach. The people I've been railing against, it's not their fault that they're stupid, right? It's not that their fault that they're misinformed. It's their fault when those philosophies cross a line in their heart that turns to hate. That's on you. When you start becoming a racist, you know, when you start like cheering on the guy who's denigrating the other person, who's making fun of a handicapped person at a rally and they cheer him like what a despicable bunch of morons. There wasn't a man in that group who could have said, no, screw you, dude. That ain't funny. That person can't help it. And that person's a hero. They're a reporter. They got the balls to walk into an office every day with whatever their perceived limitations are and still excel in life. And you fat fuck up there who was a millionaire by the time you were 11 months old or making fun of them, who've never done a damn thing in your, wife, in your life, you know, on your fourth wife, three kids with three different ladies, you're, make, you're, you're living the way the people you try to denigrate for living that way, right? They always tried to make that kind of thing like, oh, the problem in the inner cities is there's no fathers or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Because it's like Trump is the worst example of an American life. You know, like it's just, he was given everything. His dad was a tax launderer, right? So they'd put everything in his children's names, as I've explained before. Trump, by the time he was three, was a multimillionaire because his dad was hiding shit from the government. <laughs> so he'd put it in the kid's name and then he'd rent it back from them. 
right? He'd rent the property. And it was just a way to not pay his fair share after he built a fortune on the New Deal and FHA loans, right? On socialism. Democratic socialism made the Trump fortune besides prostitution, which his grandfather <laughs> ran. It's true. His grandfather ran brothels up in the Pacific Northwest for miners. That was the first business that his grandfather started when he fled Bavaria for cowardice because he didn't want to serve in the army. They benefit from countries and only take from it. And then they get these idiots waving these flags, thinking he's the true patriot. You know, and those same people sent their sons to Afghanistan, a, a thing that's crumbling right now that we almost can't even look at this weekend because it's so horrible. You know, and I have a cousin who served over there. He was a Marine sniper, you know, and he was all rah-rah. You know, he's like your age, a little older. You know, he was born in the shadow of 9-11 and thought he was doing the right thing. And he said, I went there because I was killing poor teenagers. <laughs> you know, I was just killing impoverished people. There was no point to it. We would take a hill and then we'd give it back a week later. It didn't matter. Go blow shit up and shoot people, you know, because some companies making money off it. And now we're pulling out and a bunch of people like millions of people, lots of women and children aren't ever going to get a shot at a future. We'll be sitting here doing a podcast, God willing, in six months. They won't be alive. That's your American legacy. That's your patriotism. That's your rah, 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 get a pickup truck, kick ass on the other right? That all fell apart. It's all propaganda, just like that country music that your friends are probably listening to. You ever listen to modern Nashville country? It's all like, yep, yep. I'm sitting on the porch, got some catfish cooking, you know, Sally's in some jeans, yep. you know, sunlight in the cornfield. You go to these places, there's none of that shit. It's a strip mall and a Bennigan's, you know, and a bunch of like overweight kids listening to Kid Rock. There's no country, well, I listened to George Carlin the other night and he was talking about, you know, only in America could we take a land as vast as this one and turn it into strip malls and like Applebee's, yeah. you know, like people don't even realize how vast of a land this was when the Native Americans were here and they had an understanding of how to run the actual land. And I'm, I'm for progress and development, but we could have done so much better with all these resources that were handed to us. Well, you don't have to tell me. And, you know, yeah. the Native Americans, like that's a theme that comes up in my life constantly. I have many friends that are Native Americans. And I used to was a road manager for Bad Dog, which is John Trudell, one of the founders of the American Indian movement, you know, AIM and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the wisdom that we lost that we'll never get back from people that were in tune with nature and, and the natural beauty that we've ruined. I mean, I was on a place, you know, I was on Nantucket. It's one of the most beautiful places on the planet. It's been mildly developed for like, say the last hundred years. Now it's in like super development mode because all these billionaires are coming in there with these giant yachts and building like big mansions and there's pickup trucks everywhere. And it's still quaint and nice, but it's getting ugly and it's reaching a critical mass in terms of sort of consumerism. And you just sit there and you're like, imagine what this was like when people were just kind of sailing around in canoes and they were living outside, you know, and living in natural kind of buildings and like looking at the night sky. Cause I get up there and like, you see every star in the heavens, bro. You sit there and look and you'll see shooting stars every two seconds. You see the Milky Way. I saw the Milky Way this week. You just look, Oh, there's the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. No, it's insane because there's not light pollution. There aren't a thousand strip malls in the county. And, you know, I toured. I've been everywhere in this country. Too many times to count. And you think, oh, this is going to be awesome. You know, I'm going to Texas. You know, okay, cool. <laughs> I'm in Texas. Where am I going tomorrow? I'm going to Oklahoma. And you wake up and you look out your hotel window, window and it's the same damn thing. Oh, there's the Applebee's. There's the Bennigan's, there's the parking lot, there's the Walmart, there's the chain store for the shit you don't need that's made in China. You know, that's, yeah. that, I'm into like things that are authentic and made in that place. Like I, I collect stuff. So part of when I was touring was like, I want to get something that's made there, you know, and, and have it be part of my travels. My house is full of that kind of stuff. That guitar I got in Texas, you know, one of the rare things you can get local, but um. I'd, I'd go to these places and there was nothing to buy that I couldn't buy at the Paramus Mall. You know what I'm saying? Like everybody has the same homogenized crap. And these 
trucks are carrying all this shit around the country, making our lives miserable. I don't know if you've spent any, spent any time on the roads this summer, but like it's all just massive 18 wheelers every five seconds because now everybody's ordering stuff online that's just getting shipped back and forth constantly by these other big corporations that aren't paying for those roads that are getting damaged by these super weighted down trucks every five seconds, 24 seven. Why do you need to order something online that you could just go buy in that damn big box store already in your town that's already been shipped there? Just buy the electric blanket in the Walmart that already exists, you know? Oh no, but I can save $3 and get it shipped halfway across the country. It's like a monster, you know, that feeds on itself. And that's what we've become. And we're going to have to take charge of this. And nobody wants to be the person to really begin to look at that. You know, and the climate report came out on Monday, the UN climate report. And it basically said what you already know, like we're completely screwed. It's already too late in many ways. But if you want to stave off the hellish dystopia that your children are kind of going to inherit either way, you got to start doing these things. And nobody wants to be that guy. Nobody wants to not take the plastic fork that they hand you when you get your carryout food, even though that thing's going to end up in the ocean and be an ocean gyre that's twice the size of Texas floating around. You know, overconsumption of gas and fuel. You don't need to leave your light on outside your house 24 hours a day. You know, you don't need to leave the AC on when you're not home. You don't need to do all this stuff that we're doing, but nobody wants to be the one to stop doing it. And the corporations definitely don't want you to stop doing it because it's their bottom line. So now they have politicians that think it's all a branded thing, that think it's cute to drive these jacked, jacked up pickup trucks. You know, I, I, I know I constantly harp on that because I look for trends in life. That's my job, you know, as a comedian. And there's no greater trend that I see in this world right now than the Ford F-150. It's every other freaking vehicle. And it's like, bro, you work in a bank. What the fuck do you need the King Ranch version of this truck for? I can see you and your whole family. You're not getting on the ranch. There's no hail bays, bays going back in that thing. You know, you're throwing a cooler with some donuts in it to take your kids to the beach. Get a Kia. Get a freaking like, you know, I'm not saying everybody has to be in a Tesla like electric car right away. But come on, they shouldn't be getting bigger. Like the cars don't need to get bigger and use more fuel. But it's like a middle finger to environmentalism. And if you think the Republicans fought hard against COVID uh, or COVID yeah, regulations, I should say, and vaccines and masks, because there was money to be made by people dying. Right. It came out this week. Rand Paul, the wife bought a bunch of stock in the company that makes beer. Right. So he was he got inside information. It was like the more people die, the more money we make, honey. So no mask, don't get vaccines. This fucking perm weasels up there screaming for a year and a half, telling people to die. So his bottom line gets pricier. And it used to be harder to see that stuff. It's right out in the open now. Well, and the frustrating part with the GOP is like, we haven't invested in our infrastructure in over 30 years. This is what happens when it crumbles. It's going to be more expensive. You know, the $3.5 trillion price tag for it, but it's an investment in us. You know, that's what happened when we created the New Deal initially. It was an investment and then it paid off. You know, until you put money into America, you're not going to get anything back. That's part of my frustration with the GOP. And you had, you know, Andrew Cuomo resign this week. You know, why is only one party being held accountable? Rand Paul should be on trial right now for uh, insider trading, but nothing's going to happen to that guy. Because he's got the backing of the Republicans. Right. And Kelly Loeffler and the other guy from Georgia did the same thing before. She was trading on that stuff on COVID information. And so was the guy who got beat. I can't think of his name. He used to be a big corporate guy who was trying to make fun of how you say Kamala Harris and stuff. And it turned out his whole life was like in Asian corporations and stuff. So it was, you know. He wasn't a dumb guy. He was just appealing to the rubes. And thankfully, he lost in Georgia. But both of those guys committed insider trading, you know, last January when they were getting their first Intel briefings, January 20, I mean. And uh, yeah, it's all a big scam and they know they're going to get away with it. Secretary Fatback knows nobody's <laughs> going to pay attention to him taking the $5,800 bottle of whiskey on his way out the door because he already stole 65 grand in a slush fund for emergencies to pay for his dinner parties. And he already used security for the Secretary of State to go move his mother-in-law from Louisiana back to Kansas. You know, he was having dudes doing his dishes and washing his dog. And that's, that's who Trump got, Scott Pruitt. You know, Ryan Zinke, 
Ben Carson. Like these guys were grifters. Hey, I need a new tea set or this thing ain't going to work right. You, you know, like these guys were insane. And that's who Trump attracts. It's always grifters. He wants your Scaramucci's and your Michael Cones and your guys that have big flashy tastes because he knows they're going to make a mistake. And I know those guys are heroes on the left now. I'm not trying to single them out. I'm just saying like, there isn't a lot of redemption in Trump's world. We're desperate now, you know? So it's like, oh, this guy's, everybody's making a buck off of this stuff. People on the left are making a buck too, right? There's a big industry in Trumpism. That's why he was allowed to become president. If the New York Times and CNN wanted to take him down, they would have taken him down. You don't have to look that hard to find somebody who would tell you a real story about Trump, but nobody did. You know, they all shut up. Nobody covered it. I told people nobody, you know, they killed the stories. In 2016, I gave People magazine a story that was supposed to be the cover story. OK, and I was put in touch with them by Hillary Rodham Clinton's campaign. And they were like, tell these people what you know. And I told them everything. And they're like, yeah, this is going to be the cover story next week. And the week came out and the cover story was on Nancy O'Dell's divorce. And Nancy's a old friend of mine. I like Nancy, but that wasn't exactly breaking news. And I met her right. husband when before they were married, but whatever. A celebrity divorce trumped, no pun intended, uh, the firsthand accounts I was giving them of sexual assault, of drug use, of all this kind of stuff. Because, hey, don't rock the boat. There's money to be made. So somebody either catch and kill got to it or a bigger print company was like, hey, we could sell one magazine a million times, you know, or we could sell 300 magazines, 5 million times if this guy becomes president. And if you don't think those enter in the equations, you don't understand the business. It's a business, okay? MSNBC is directly across the street from Fox News. It's all right there on 6th Avenue. Simon & Schuster is right across the street from there. I don't think people understand what a small geographic area, just in physicality, that this whole thing is. Trump was a local story. Geraldo lived in my neighborhood. You know, Jeffrey Epstein lived down the street. Bette Midler's at the other end of the street. Peggy right. Noonan is walking down my block every day. All these guys are local. This is a local story where everybody kind of knew the deal. And it, it sort of permeated out into the heartland in a way that gets misunderstood and misinterpreted. You know, that's why the best example is like Trump wouldn't spit on these people if they were on fire. You know, the people that support him, when he had his casinos, he would always do these grandiose walks through the casino because he needs people to look at him all the time. Just like <laughs> now they're paying people to go to Bedminster and they'll have him walk in a room and then everybody will scream like it's the Beatles or something. You know, that's just right. a feed because he's got such a hole inside of himself. He constantly needs it or he starts lashing out violently you know, to the people around him. So they're always trying to appease him. It's an abusive relationship. You know, they're codependent with him and it's hell. But he would walk through these casinos and he would make his security guards walk next to him. So none of these people touched him because they'd see him and they'd be like, oh my God, Mr. Trump. So an old lady from Ohio would get up from her seat, you know, as she's putting in her social security check into one of his machines and would try to run over and touch him. And he would be like, get away from me. That's where the whole germaphobe thing came from. He's not really a germaphobe. OK, mm -hmm. he, had, he had sex with porn stars. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like he eats yeah. McDonald's. If you're eating McDonald's, a food that's made by a teenager, you know what right. I mean? A stranger to you. You're not a homophobe, you know, but I mean, a homophobe, a germaphobe. He is a homophobe. He's actually not. He's not even. That's a weird like segue, but he's not even homophobe. Like he's got, you know, he's got homosexual people around him. And uh, if they benefit him, he would have right, exactly. He just he just, you know, he was a Democrat when I worked for him. Like there is no there's no allegiance to anything like he doesn't really believe in any of this stuff. He believes in hate and getting what he needs. And he's severely psychotic. As I said all the time, he was a bad seed when he was a kid. He would throw rocks at the babies. His own next door literally would throw rocks at the baby who lived next door. That's not a joke or a metaphor. That's a true story. They'd put the baby in one of those little jumper things, those little cage things. I don't know what they're called. Right. The, it's like a playpen. Yeah. They jump exactly. up and down. Right. right. Yeah. You put them out in the yard or something so the kid's kind of contained. So the neighbors next door to Trump would put one of those in the backyard <laughs> and Trump would sit in his yard and throw rocks at the kid. And his family couldn't handle him, and they sent him to reform school. That's the military wow. school he went to, and he tried to, tried to throw his neighbor, I mean, his roommate, out the window. You know, so, 
Hey, let me say let me say one more thing because there's so many crazy things that this guy's done that nobody's ever paid attention to. But one of his things when he was there, he was on the baseball team, and he would tell people that he was scouted by the major leagues. That he was <laughs> such a great pitcher and hitter that they scouted him and he would have joined the major leagues you can google this jimmy you'll get a kick out of it so a sports (laughs) writer did a whole big thing on it and he would make people say like that he would hit a home run and it went out of the park like down the street into the neighboring town all this shit he said with a straight face you ever seen the guy try to throw a ball (laughs) I'm i'm sure he takes it low and outside like he took the country but you know that's me but right no but that's a true story but so anyway my point is money covered up his psychopathy you know that's why they always had to buy his grades they had to support that school the military school like in perpetuity until it finally went out (laughs) they would build gymnasiums and whatever to just make sure they never released his records because there's so many infractions for being a psychopath and then the school finally closed and they called him up at the last minute and we're like hey can you save the school and he's like everything must come to an end you know, he was happy to see this alma mater like close forever because with it, his secrets died, you know, and I could do a whole show on this. And obviously I've done many, but the point is there's a million stories to hold this guy accountable and nobody seems to want to. And now we're at where it's not even like, oh, n- not that there's anything minor about like sexual predation or doing blow in the back of a limo or all this other stuff that might kind of make you not eligible to be president. Now we have proof that at the DOJ, you know, when he had appointed Jeffrey Rosen, that Jeffrey Clark, this other scumbag, crazy lawyer who is sympathetic to Trump's causes, was trying to shake down states, you know, was mm-hmm. trying to get Raffensperger and all these other guys to say that the election, the results didn't count. We came so close. If just one of those states had done that, it would have been game over. He would have said, nope, I'm still president, institute martial law, like whatever, I'm not leaving. And that would have been a constitutional crisis unlike anything we'd ever seen, right? We saw how it played out and what still went down, right? He got tens of thousands of people to show up in D.C. and attack the Capitol and try to hang the vice president, right? That should be so mind-blowing to people. It should be like, did that really happen? (laughs) Like, wait a minute, what are we talking about here? And it just happened, and it's one of the things. And now the the stuff is still coming out, and people are like, oh, you think they'll ever take him down? Are you fucking kidding me? Do you know what I mean? How is that? You want to talk about white privilege? There it is, a big sack of orange shit right in front (laughs) of you. The most white privileged person who's ever existed on this planet is wearing a diaper, He's wearing a dead ferret on his head. You know what I mean? He's grabbing every ass that walks into a room. He tried to usurp an election, and he's still sitting on his golf course today, Jimmy, in Jersey, taking in probably $10, $20 million this weekend alone off of his supporters. Wow. I mean, that's that's a criminal, bro. That's a criminal. Well, and uh, to add on to your, you know, all the fantasies that Trump has created for himself, Rick Riley wrote an entire book about Trump and his relationship with golf. You know, Trump had had history of opening up a course and then saying that he won the first club championship and he would be the only person playing. And there's also examples of him saying he won a championship and he didn't even play in the tournament at all. He would just say, you know, I want to be the champion. And then the the pro or whoever he hired at the time would say, okay. And then they, you know, make a plaque out of it. And when you placate to a psychopath that much, including from the time that he was a child through adulthood, he's only going to expect that from everyone else. And it, we've seen the damage that that's done. And that's not saying he's not accountable or culpable in his crimes, but when you enable a psychopath, uh, bad things happen. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and, you know, I got friends who used to play golf with him and he'd also pull out pictures of really young girls and show them to his buddies and be on these text chains and be like, hey, check this out. I'll send it to you. And my buddy got off the text chain was like, this is freaking disgusting. Take me off of this thing. Like, I don't want my wife to think I'm into this. She looks at my phone like he's also a psycho. You know, he guarantee you he showed people pictures of Ivanka because he had hidden cameras and all that stuff. And he wanted people to like want his daughter in a weird way. Like he would ask you that, like, what's she wearing today? You know, like that's not a good impression of him. But I always remember him like, what Ivanka's here, sir? What's she wearing? Like, what? 
oh, she's wearing a bustier and them tits look massive, bro. You know, like that's what he wanted you to say. He wasn't like a normal father. So on the golf course, he's basically showing people illicit material, hoping that they're going to be into it, right? Because then he's got you. The same way Matt Gates was showing this stuff in Congress. He was looking for the dudes who wanted some of that action because then they could compromise them. That's how you do the compromise. And on the golf course also, like, this is the craziest thing to me is like, he would have a souped up golf cart. So he, cause, right. so when you, when he goes, he just gets in the golf cart and flies down the green. He doesn't wait <laughs> for everybody in his group to take their swing, right? Cause then, cause he cheats. So he'll move the ball. So he's trying to get there before you can. So you can't see him like move the ball by the cup and stuff. And he's a terrible golfer. You know, he's a terrible, like, human being as we're establishing but he's the most unathletic guy he, he literally sat in an suv and wouldn't get out of it at the museum of natural history and asked for a golf cart it was like i need a golf cart and we're like it's a museum you can't run a golf cart down the hallway of the museum of natural history you know and i run into the woolly mammoth there's no insurance for that you gotta walk 50 feet you fat slug you know and when he was president, I, I've said this before, but, you know, I think it's the Hayes Hotel. There's a hotel across the street from the White House. And uh, it's like all the dignitaries stay there, right? You're the king of England or somewhere, you're, you know, obviously we haven't had a king of England in a while. But, you know, you're, you're yeah. a foreign dignitary. You stay in this hotel and it's across the park in front of the White House, right? And people would always walk to this hotel. Like when I lived in D.C., I would see Brent Scowcroft and George H.W. Bush. They would make a point to walk across the street. And back then it was a different world. 14th Street was, you know, uh, Pennsylvania Avenue was open. It wasn't this lockdown thing. And it was kind of neat to see the president walking around. When Trump had to do it, he got in an SUV with seven other SUVs and <laughs> drove there. And Jimmy, I, I, it's hard if you don't know the geographics of how close a thing this is, it, 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 it's just like what, you know, but he, that's who he is. He's unathletic. So the golf is just a ruse. Golf is where he does, like I said, showing the dirty pictures, making the calls. He's a mob boss, right? He knows nobody can listen out on the 18th hole, right? right. You're outside, you're saying stuff. That's where he gets business done. That's why he likes golf. It's not because he's an athlete. It's because. You know, he doesn't, you know, he knows he's probably being bugged all the time. He's always been in bed with the FBI in one way or another, because that's the other reason he hasn't gotten busted, because he's a rat, too. You know, yeah. so he'll give just enough on the mob that they leave him alone and take down Gotti and stuff. So anyway, let me let, let, let's switch gears here a minute, Jimmy, unless you got anything else you want to add. I'll just say real quick. One thing that my dad taught me, one of the first lessons he taught me was on the golf course. You know, he would take me to play golf and one of the things that you don't do in golf is you don't cheat. It uh, defines you as a man. That's one of the things about golf is that you don't cheat. You write the score that you get. And at the end of the match, you shake hands and it's a, it's a gentleman's game, but you know, if Trump cheats at golf, you don't think he's going to cheat on his wife. Oh wait, he did. You don't think he's going to cheat on his taxes. Oh wait, he has. <laughs> and you know, he's going to cheat to steal an election. Uh, golf indicates everything you need to know about 45. So. Exactly. He's a cheat. You know, he's a cheat from a family of cheats, and he got a lot of this country to think it was cool to cheat, yeah. right? The debate with Hillary. She said, you don't pay your taxes. He goes, that makes me smart, right? And everybody <laughs> cheered. They're like, fuck yeah, he's smart. He's not paying his taxes. No, that's not smart. That's an asshole, you know? <laughs> if you come and mow my lawn and I don't pay you, you're going to be happy about that? So, yeah, man. Like, but people cheered it in the face of Trump because it was wrapped in bacon, Right. Like an American flag version of bacon. That's what Trump was. A big old greasy steak wrapped in extra stuff that'll stop your heart. That looks good to a ravenous appetite of an ignorant guy who's fed on crap. Right. That's really what this country is. People don't understand what they've become. They don't understand who created them. And now they're scared to speak out. You know, I, got, I know people follow me on Facebook that I've known my whole life. Some of them who left like my area will be into my comedy and comment. The rest of them, you can tell like they have too many friends that are MAGA and stuff. So they just don't get involved. It's seen as impolite. Well, I'm not going to take a political stance on wearing a mask. It's not political. It's saving your life. I was on a beach last week, Jimmy. You will like this. I was wishing you were there with me. And, and about five feet from the shore, a great white shark ate a seal. 
Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> and people are in the water. You know, everything you fear. I sent you that picture, right, of the great. Right. It's no joke. They're there, right? So everybody's yeah. hot, sunny day. Everybody's in the water, right? All of a sudden, wow, you know, great white shark just boom, eats a seal, right? <laughs> Seals Man. flailing, big blood slick in the water. It happened three feet from a woman, right? So the lifeguards are blowing their whistles and running down the beach. And at first they thought it was a person. They didn't know it was a seal right away. Just right. like, get out of the water, you know? And you've never seen people move so fast, right? They got the hell out of the water. Nobody was like, it's freedom, bro. You can't tell me I can't go in the water. People yeah. had no problem getting out of the water and listening to authority, which in this case is a 17-year-old kid with a whistle and red shorts. But they behave that way because they're the experts, right? And that's for public good. You get out of the water unless you want to get your leg ripped off or worse, you know, but these are great white sharks. You ain't going to survive that attack. And this is shallow water, Jimmy. This is three, four feet of water. So anyway, my point is, you know, they closed the beach for an hour afterwards. There weren't protests. There weren't people going up to the lifeguard stand, cursing them out, saying it was a hoax. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They were behaving with caution in an organized fashion for the greater good, for safety. So somebody's kid didn't have to watch somebody get eaten by a shark. And truth be told, when they opened the beach again an hour later, nobody got in above their knees, man. Like grown <laughs> ass men, everybody's standing there. And I'm a freak, so I dove in and kind of swam out a little bit. But even me was like, that image stays in your head. You're like, oh, any second, a big old shark could just eat me. And uh, anyway, that's my little shark story. You know, I'm sort of related to Peter Benchley, who wrote Jaws. My grandfather was Peter Benchley. Yeah, no, my grandfather was Peter Benchley's godfather. And Peter Benchley's father, Nathaniel, was my dad's godfather. They were, the ben wow. Benchley's were great family friends with the Castlers. And he wrote Jaws and his regret it, Peter did, and regret it, regretted it his whole life because it created that fear. You know, like everybody who's scared of the sharks is basically because they saw Jaws. You know, before uh -huh. that, you weren't really like super terrified. Obviously, you see one eat a seal, you're going to be cautious about it. But this horror show it's kind of unfounded and it more people kill sharks than sharks ever going to kill people. So uh, I'm with the sharks is, is <laughs> yeah, it's uh, for me, it's tough to, to balance on flatland, you know, so going to a beach has always been kind of a difficult task. I enjoy it, you know, but uh, I've always kind of had caution with the ocean and the bottom of my feet are really sensitive because of my cerebral palsy. So like if I hit, shells or something like it, it'll hurt my feet you know They're i hear that sensitive. oh yeah. and the beach i was at yesterday is all rocks so it completely right. hurts your feet they had it's wonderfully wheelchair chair accessible and they had oh, great. beach wheelchairs available you know with big puffy tires and stuff yeah. and lifeguards will help you you know get down the beach and stuff so it's a cool accessible beach we'll get you on someday and uh, but uh yeah. and it's funny those rocks you know it doesn't i was in uh What's the name of the, 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 there's a beach town in the south of England, Brighton. All right. I was down in Brighton a couple of years ago and they had the World Rugby Championship was there. I was on tour with Crosby, Stills and Nash and we happened to be playing this town the same time as this rugby championship. And it was mm -hmm. a break in the game and their beaches are all these little pebbles, right? It's all rocks. And the American rugby team came out and like went, came out, got on the beach and wanted to go for a swim. Right. So they all take their shoes off and start walking down to the water. And they're these massive guys, you know, like uh, rugby players. You can imagine like 300 <laughs> yeah. pounds, just all muscle, you know, like thighs the size of oak tree, <laughs> you know, just massive dudes. And they're all like stepping on these rocks all daintily and like, oh, ow, ooh, you know, and like right. scattering down to the water. It was just like a hilarious juxtaposition. But anyway, I saw a tweet this week. Somebody was talking about Don Fagan, who lived in my neighborhood. Don Fagan was a singer in Steely Dan. I'm sure your dad was a Steely Dan fan. Huge fan. Yeah, Huge of course. Fan. Who isn't? And and just so our listeners know, that's that's Jimmy's father. Our theme music is Jimmy's father. That's an an original composition that I know Don would Don's listened to the show. So he and his wife are friends. I've known him a long time, but for some reason this story came to mind and I've told him this story. I've had the pleasure of like having dinner with him and we're neighbors in New York city and we're, we were neighbors for time up in Woodstock and stuff. And uh, the first time I got to meet Steely Dan was when they got inducted in the rock and roll hall of fame. 
Okay. And I was working with, I was with the Foo Fighters that night. Some of the Foo Fighters, Dave and Taylor were, were playing with Queen, right? Queen was oh, getting cool. inducted. Yeah. Freddie Mercury's mom was there and stuff. And uh, so they were my assignment. And then Steely Dan, which was Walter, you know, Steely Dan is two, was two guys. One of them, you know, rest his soul. Walter has left us, but so it's Walter and, and Donald and uh, we're doing the show. And the, uh, the MD is Paul Schaefer you know, from David Letterman's band. And he's like, hey, no, I need another guitar player for the Steely Dan tribute. You're working with the Queen tonight? And I was like, yeah, you know, Brian May's over here. He goes, go ask Brian May if he'll sit in on Ricky Don't Lose That Number. And I'm like, all right, yeah, no problem. And I run over to the table where Brian May is sitting and I'm like, hey, Brian, Paul wants you to come sit in. We're going to do Ricky Don't Lose That Number. You know, you want to come and do it? We need another guitar player. And he's like, uh, yeah, no way. No way am I playing that. You know? <laughs> Go tell him no. And I was like, okay. And I run back and I'm like, yeah, Paul, he doesn't want to do it. He's like, what do you mean? Tell him it's, you know, C major, C pentatonic, C minor pentatonic scale, you know, like so I run and I'm like, it's uh C, C, you know, C, C minor, C sharp pentatonic or something. He said, it's no big deal. He's like, no, no, tell him no. I go back. I tell Paul again, like he doesn't want to do it. He's like, come on, just tell him it's, you know, whatever it's blue scale. I run back and I say, Hey, you know, Brian, here's the scale he really wants you to do it he goes dude you're not getting it i play queen songs that i make up <laughs> you know i play so i'm not getting up there and playing with steely freaking dan you know like i'm not playing that music it's way too hard and i just thought it was hilarious because it's like brian may this is like a guitar hero one of the first solos i ever learned was killer queen you know in the 80s and is a phenomenal guitar player and it was just funny that musicians can also get intimidated, you know, and I told Donald that story years later. He's like, I was intimidated, too, you know, but um, it's just funny. Uh, and Brian May was in the news last week, too. Maybe that's why I thought of it, because he, you know, he spoke out against Eric Clapton and Eric Clapton right. turned into an anti-vaxxer, you know, nutbag. And I like I've worked with Eric. I'll tell that story another time. I did a show where he and Keith Richards got in a big fight and didn't speak for 10 years. <laughs> In-depth story. It's actually in my in my memoir that I've written. But um, so anyway, Brian's a great guy. Donald Fagan is a great guy, great music. And uh, I'm going to be telling some of these music stories in my stand-up, Jimmy. What do you think about that? Oh, I think people would love it, man. Uh, dad always opened the show. Uh, my dad, Chooch Kennedy, musician from Indianapolis. He would always open up with uh, Peg. That was one of the songs he would always open up with. That was, and he was always a big fan of uh, using horns for his band, my, my um, dad, Chooch. And, you know, they, they utilize that all the time in their yeah, songs. Me too. Horns, man. Howard Johnson passed away this year. Howard Johnson was the horn player for a lot of the early band stuff, Rock of Ages and all that. Just a legendary New York horn guy. The last time I saw Howard Johnson play, Donald Fagan was in the group too. It was at Levon Helm's house. You know, he had this ramble that he would do. He had a barn built onto his house in Woodstock and he would have these concerts there, you know, and they started as a way to pay his medical fees and stuff in his, his last years. But uh, they turned into these just great kind of hoot nannies that he would have. You could buy a ticket and there's like a hundred people sitting there. And Howard Johnson was there with a couple other horn guys that night. Donald Fagan, they played a great Shakedown Street. They opened the show with the Grateful Dead song. And uh, I went into, I don't know if I've told this story before. I was there with Jackson Brown and a band called Dawes, you know, and it, it's me and Jackson basically in this little rental car. And uh, we go, we show up and then like Levon invites us into the house, you know, and, and like I sit down at this table and Levon's like, hey man, you want a soda pop? And I'm like, I can't. <laughs> sure, you know, and he's like, I could drink an orange soda. And I'm sitting at this table with Levon Helm and I, they see this older guy sitting there. It's Garth Hudson from the band. I'm like, oh, my God, it's Garth, you know, and it was almost like overwhelming. So I got up to go tune Jackson's guitar in the living room and I ran into Donald Fagan. It was my neighbor in the city. And I was like, hey, Donald. And he just blew me off. <laughs> it's just me and him in the living room. He just walks by me. And I was like, you're so weird, Donald. But uh, he and his wife, Libby, are awesome. And they have, you know, Libby Titus and, and Donald and Levon Helm had a daughter, Amy Helm, who's another great singer. So great music in that world. But when we finished and the highlight of the show was definitely seeing Howard Johnson playing the, the horns. And uh, we get in the car afterwards and Jackson, it's just me and him in this rental car. And he looks over at me and he's like, did that really happen? And I was like, right? I was like, I'm going to have to quit now. And he started laughing. He was like, yeah, you're not going to top that musically. You know, time to find another gig. So I did. Now I'm a stand-up comedian, folks. And my first show is going to be at the Ram's Head 
in Annapolis, Maryland, a town I love. I'm from Maryland originally. I left in about 1984, but uh, as a kid, but uh, I've lived there a bit as an adult. I got a lot of family there. Maryland's got a big part of my heart. And actually the last time I was at the Rams head was with Stephen Stills, 10 years ago to the month that I'll be headlining there myself. So it's funny how things work out, you know, cause I was there as his road manager. It was a super crazy tour. And uh, now I'm back there headlining with my original stand-up comedy and my political takes and my car rants and all that good stuff. So come on out. We're going to be masked. We're going to be vaxxed. It's going to be safe and it's going to be hilarious. So I hope to see you there. Until then, keep listening to the podcast. Jimmy's got his own podcast he's going to tell you about right now. Yeah, JBK on air. Uh, This past week, I interviewed one of my high school classmates. He ended up playing football at UCLA and with the Los Angeles Chargers as a tight end kind of gave his experience uh, having played football including the bumps and bruises of post-career so for anybody that wants an inside look of what it's like to play football at the college and NFL level yeah I might want to check that out there you go football you know Belichick because I told you his house was right right yeah that's right man is it a nice crib yeah, it's a nice crib. It's not, it's in a very understated area where, you know, like a little shack will cost you $2 million. So I don't know if you're thinking MTV cribs, it's not like that. But yeah, it's a beautiful home that I would love to have that anybody would. But it's, you know, it's East Coast kind of nice crib. You know what I'm saying, Jimmy? It's not like big, it's not Kanye West, big McMansion kind of kind of thing. For Bill Belichick, I'm sure it meets his requirements. It's so. nice. Yeah, he's a kind of an understated guy, you know, and he's all, I've never seen him. I've been going there for a long time and he's had the house and I just never see him. And the front door is always open, like the screen door. And I always walk by hoping to catch a glimpse of him. I think he's all, I mean, I've met him obviously on the football field. I've told those stories at the Super Bowl, you know, the Super Bowl where he lost in Phoenix, he walked off the field early. I was on the, the Patriot <laughs> side of the field watching the game and he walked right past me in a huff and I ran on the field with my friends and started celebrating. And the referees are like, there's still time on the clock. And they start <laughs> yelling at us and put like a rope around us, you know, and then the confetti drops and they just gave up. But afterwards yeah, yeah. I went sort of in the VOM, you know, in the area where they parked the buses and Belichick got on the front seat of his bus. Like he didn't even go to the locker room or anything. He was so pissed. He just went and sat on the bus waiting for everybody else to get on and leave. And he was like talking to his wife or something on the cell phone and just like pissed off looking. And I happened to be sitting outside the bus and he just stared at me. Like, you know, when someone stares at you and they're having a (laughs) conversation that isn't about you, but they're focusing on you as they talk. And probably because I was smiling, he was pissed. And it was just this weird thing where he's just looking me in the eyes, you know, (laughs) uh, just staring at me. And here's another thing that I guess I'll end the show with about football, because like the same sort of, you know, you're hearing about quarterbacks this week that refuse to get vaccinated and stuff. And like, how are you going to be on the offensive line? Put your body (laughs) at risk to save some dude who's yelling, hut. One, hut, two. You know, he's literally spitting <laughs> on you as he's getting ready to snap the ball or, you know, whatever, like to put it in play. I don't know that I'm not a sports guy, but you know what I mean? The dude's yelling right behind you. You're about going to get creamed by a 350 pound guy who's been training all year to do one thing, try to break your neck and like tackle that guy. Like, that's insane. You're not going to get vaccinated. Even the shield, you know, the league itself has said, like, get vaccinated or you're not going to get paid. It is a business at the end of the day. And as far as like the on field stuff, I'm not encouraging this, but the windows for these guys is like three years. Most players don't last that long. And hopefully you land on a team that you have a chance to win a championship. So if you have a quarterback, especially a guy that's going to lead a team onto the field that refuses to get vaccinated, you might have a player miss a block and then they get hit, you know, and that's, that's one of the sacrifices you, you have in the game. Exactly. I see what you're saying. I see where you're going with that. There's a lot of inner politics. You know, one of the great lessons I got in football was Marshawn Lynch is one of my favorite modern era football players, dude. And I got, we did a show, a Super Bowl where the Seahawks were in, they were playing the Patriots and, uh, I remember at halftime, I was standing in the hallway with Lenny Kravitz getting ready to bring him on the field and Marshawn walks by and they're coming off the field, like, right. And Marshawn walks by us. Cause you're all in these little hallways 
And he's like, oh shit, Lenny Kravitz, <laughs> man, oh shit. <laughs> like, can I get a picture? And I took the picture, I have them. Like I got these great photographs of like Marshawn and Lenny, you know, in the hallway and stuff. It was just so funny how he was not even in like football mode. Like he saw like, wow, Lenny Kravitz, let me get a picture. Cool guy, right? But then yeah. at the end of the game, I was in that same side of the Valm, and that was the game where I don't know the name of the coach for the Seahawks. Pete Carroll? Pete Carroll, right? Yeah, so yeah. it comes down yeah. to this final play. They're on the one-yard line, right? You know, oh, no, but yeah. Even me would know you run the ball, right? You're not going to pass the ball from first down, one-yard line, <laughs> Super Bowl on the line. Like, literally, I could have gotten the ball across the, <laughs> across the line, right, for in like three tries, let yeah. alone you got Marshawn Lynch on your team. You know, you got the best guy in the world to do that task. <laughs> you know, you hand him the ball, he's scoring that touchdown, right? But what happened? Pete Carroll had the quarterback pass the ball. So that happens. The Patriots won. It was the most difficult you know, horrible sinking feeling because you <laughs> with a compassionate heart obviously wanted the Seahawks to win, right? The good guys, yeah. Patriots are scumbags. They cheat. They're like the Donald Trump of football teams. No offense if you listen and you like them. I get it. You're from Boston, <laughs> but they suck. They had a murderer on their team. They cheat. Tom Brady's an asshole. <laughs> Just my personal opinion. You know, Belichick's a monster. But anyway, Pete Carroll has, what's the great quarterback from Seattle's name? Uh, Russell Wilson. Right, Russell Wilson. Okay, so this was the Super Bowl where Marshawn was refusing to go to press day, which is a big part of it, and they made him <laughs> go to press day, so he would just give this prepared statement and stuff. He wasn't playing nice, and the NFL didn't like that because they want people to fall in line. So the coaches knew that if the play came back, because if you remember, the play was called, Russell Wilson throws the ball, and the Patriots guy intercepted it because he planned for that play. And the only way that Belichick knew to prepare his team for that play was because he understood the politics of being an NFL quarterback. And had they handed the ball to Marshawn Lynch, he would have been named the MVP of the game. And you would have had Marshawn doing all the press after the game. And they wanted Russell Wilson, who's very well-spoken and corporate and kind of plays along. So they wanted Russell Wilson to have that moment in the spotline and were sort of cocksure that he was going to be able to complete the pass. Do you follow what I'm saying here? I, I do. The, the yeah. psychology of the, the, the coaches, because normally a coach wouldn't even prepare for that because you'd be like, there's no way that an NFL coach is going to pass it on the one yard line with the Super Bowl on the line except yeah. for basically racism and imagery. Do you see what I'm saying? So the play yeah. goes down. I'm sitting in the VOM. Marshawn Lynch is the first guy off the field and he's carrying his helmet. And he's just saying to anybody in particular, he's like, y'all motherfuckers could have won. You could have handed me the ball, but you didn't want to hand me the ball. Dumb, you know, he was just cursing and pissed because he knew what went down. He right. knew they were, that was his job. How do you not give it to that guy? And I remember a comment the next day, somebody's like, I woke up my son, you know, who's eight years old and doesn't know, you know, much about football. And I said, Hey, this is what happened in the Super Bowl last night. You know, the team had the ball on the one yard line with first down. What do you do? And my son's like, run the ball. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, right. right. But Marshawn knew it was part of the greater imagery of the NFL and what they're trying to represent to people, right? They don't want the guy that they think is gangsta, you know, the guy who's advocating for himself and his own speech. You know, this ties into Colin Kaepernick and stuff. They want people to play nice and be corporate. And Belichick knew that and exploited it and it cost them the game. But Marshawn is no nobody's fool. And I, I just always remember his image of him like carrying that helmet and being like, y'all motherfuckers could have won. And it's a metaphor for our country, for racism. Right. You know, how many things could we have won if we didn't keep African-American men down because we wanted to hand it to like, the corporate white guy instead not that russell wilson is white but they wanted they wanted the proper guy to win right they uh, wanted what they understood as safe you know who's to say that marshawn isn't a badass he is how many marshawn lynches have we lost in this world who could have rushed in and scored victories for us as a country in any bunch of ways but they were demonized you know they were locked up for unfair targeted drug laws and inner city systematic educational things. That's what like critical race theory is about. It's trying to blow the lid off that and show people like how slanted the world is against 
your African-American folks that are growing up here that built this fucking country. You know what I mean? That still haven't gotten their fair share that are still trying to have a day at the beach and got some 24 year old punk kid walking down with a Trump t-shirt, you know, when they're trying to sit and let their children play in the sand, it's wrong. It's offensive. It's embarrassing to me that we're still talking about this because I had the blessing of growing up in a neighborhood that was mixed. You know, my best friends were African-American and Muslim and we were all kids together and we shouldn't be talking about this stuff. I'm 50 years old now and I'm embarrassed for this country. I'm embarrassed for how out in the open racism has become and for how many young folks are walking out there around like it's cute. It's not cute. Mm -hmm. Your Trump flag is a fucking Al Qaeda flag as far as I see. You're a terrorist and we're gonna win. Okay, we're going to eradicate you guys, not in a violent way, but in a like, you know, we're going to force you to go to yoga and eat vegan and listen to like Ani DeFranco. Okay, I'm going to start internment camps to unredneck your ass. Okay, (laughs) that's a joke. But you know what I mean? I was in Provincetown last week. How are people ever homophobic in this world? You know, most people know my mom was lesbian. I grew up around this stuff when people were hiding in the 70s. Now they don't have to hide. You will never find a more polite, more joyful place than Provincetown. Literally, everybody is just so polite. Hi, how are you doing? And they mean it. It's wonderful. The world needs more LGBTQ communities. You know, we all need that. You need that in every neighborhood, not hiding in the shadows or not at the end of a cape all the way out in the ocean because they went out there because it was the only place they had to go because they had to hide everywhere else and they couldn't be themselves. And you go where people are allowed to be themselves. And what do you get? You get love. You get harmony. You get acceptance. You get empathy. You get understanding. You don't want that for your children. That's what I want for my kids. That's what I want in the world I want to live in, a place where everyone's allowed to be who they're meant to be, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Anyway, that's where I'm going to leave it this week. Thanks for listening, guys. Episode 24 of the Noel Kassler podcast is in the books. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Peace.